Well, there you go. So much. I, I think my favorite part is when the people watching say, why aren't there any boys up there? <laughs> and we all know, because boys don't know, let it go. Can I get an amen? <laughs> no, you do. Most boys, it's kind of, a, uh, that was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. And then, the, I don't know, there might be some superstars on that stage. Do you think we shall see in the future? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save this video. I knew him, or her, I knew her win. So there we go. Fun times. Um, I also wanted, this is like the totally out of the blue, not really good transition time, but wanted to say thanks to Tim Muscalit for bringing his guys down. Um, Jake and Noah, many of you know them from a few years back. They're a little taller now. Yep, and uh, they came down for the last few days and been goofing off, so they're kind of in the middle with three of their friends. Three, yes, they could do the math right. One, two, Jake and Grant and Andrew. So thanks for coming down. You guys hosted them. So just want to mention that in case somebody didn't get a chance to say hi to Tim from from uh, his quick trip. They're leaving right after service. Got to drive back to Murphy, North Carolina. But maybe they'll be back again. I don't know. Hope so. Okay, cool. Um, did you ever turn in your key from being, you know, deacon and... Okay, good. We actually need a few extras, so if you could see Janet on your way. <laughs> no. um, I, if I said the name Lance Armstrong, I would get some mixed reaction. Probably many of you in this room at one time had the yellow Livestrong bracelet. How many of you? Come on, admit it. You want to admit it. Yellow Livestrong. Right? That was, that was kind of the thing. It was his foundation. He did a lot. Remarkable individual. Some remarkable achievements. Uh, how many years in a row? I wrote it down because I think seven years in a row, he won the Tour de France. That, what's that? Well, we're getting there. Come on, don't ruin the ending. He, uh, seven years in a row, that that bike race that goes across France. I don't remember how many miles it is total, but those two or three weeks, however long it takes, won it. Uh, I think Greg was it. Greg LeMond was the first American to ever win it, and then he came along, and year after year after year, and he was dogged by doping allegations for years and and adamantly refused to admit. I mean, just strongly denied ever doing anything wrong. And many people supported him. Many people said, you know, they're just out to get him. They're trying to discredit this great athlete. And then there was kind of the rumblings that sort of built momentum until a few years ago. I well, It was probably on Oprah because everything seems to happen like that. On Was it on Oprah? I don't know. Anyway, he came out and admitted Yes, in fact, he doped, he cheated, and he won, and they stripped him of his titles. And he went from this, well, a lot of people already taken him from that, from, from a hero, from an athletic, uh, amazing individual to sort of a, a bit of a discredited individual. Still there, still has some influence. And we could list a lot of other athletes, maybe. We could talk about the, uh, was it Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, remember that? kind of home run year where they were neck and neck and then Barry Bonds a few years later and there's all that sort of thing about did they, didn't they, uh, and, uh, who knows. You think about those athletes. Hey, did anybody know it's almost football season? Did you know the Tampa Bay Buccaneers played their first preseason game last night? Who doesn't care? Amen. Let's move on. I watched it. I'm not too excited. But anyway, you know, we have all we have these these individuals in our in our culture, particularly sports, it seems to be a lot of us in America. We put them on that, that pedestal, and we look up to them, and, and, and we find out too often when the story's finally told that they're flawed individuals. And, you know, if, if 
I'm honest, there are times I have to admit, as much as I don't like to, that I have a little bit in common with Lance Armstrong. And if you are honest, you probably have a little bit in common with Lance Armstrong. Not that you want a bicycle race or are dope to do it, but, but there are probably things in your life that you do your best to kind of keep hidden. That you don't want to admit, that you don't want to air out, that you hope nobody ever really finds out about. You know, we've been talking for the last few weeks about this idea of what it means to live a life with an awareness that God is always at work around us. That, that no matter where we look, if we'll just look closely, we will see the evidence that our God is doing things and is active and, and is the one that we can credit for so much. We use the idea of Moses and the burning bush, that, that it was only the fact that he took the time to notice, hey, there's something going on over there, that he had that encounter with God. And more often than not in our lives, in our busy lives, we are rushing so fast from point to point that we miss all around us the activity and the presence of God. And we talked last week kind of about the, the positive side of what it means when we notice of, of we will be truly grateful people when we, we see that God is always at work and always doing things that we can be thankful for. And, and I guess today I want to talk about the, from the negative side, one of the key barriers that can keep us from experiencing the activity of God in our lives and around us, keep us from the awareness that God is in fact at work and God is in fact somebody that we can notice in even the mundane of our everyday. We're going to look at another gentleman that shares a lot in common with Lance Armstrong and therefore me and maybe you too, and his name is Jacob. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 32 is where we'll look at uh, this one encounter, this one account of what happens in his life. And Jacob, you probably know, is one of the patriarchs of Israel. In fact, when you talk about Israel, we often talk about their God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, the one that, that God called and gave that initial covenant to and said, Out of you I will, I will bless all the people of the earth. And then his son Isaac. And then Isaac has twins with his wife, Jacob and Esau. And they're born, and boy, is that story fascinating. Jacob is born just a few seconds after Esau. And interestingly enough, as these twins are born, the account tells us that as Esau is born, Jacob comes out with a hand on his brother, as if they were battling from the very beginning to see who was going to be the firstborn. And, and part of the name Jacob might mean heel grabber or deceiver. We have a couple of Jacobs here today. Sorry. We'll get there in a minute. But, but that's his name from the time he was born. And, and, and names in the Old Testament often meant particular things. Esau could mean a red or hairy. Guess what? Esau was, any guesses? Hairy and... These aren't hard questions. And so these twins are born, and, and their lives are marked by this sort of struggle. And Jacob, for one, really kind of lives up to his name. 
until we get to this account in Genesis 32, which is where we want to hang out for a few minutes. It's one that you're probably aware of if you think about, well, it's a key moment in Jacob's life. It's, it's a pretty uh, defining moment for him. And in, in chapter 32, we're going to begin in verse 24, we see what happens. Uh, so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Let's stop right there and set the scene. Why is Jacob alone? Great question. I'm so glad you asked it. The reason he's alone is because as time has gone on, it occurs that the next day it is likely he is going to meet up for the first time in a long time, with his brother Esau. Which maybe sounds like a wonderful, this is going to be a great reunion. Except Jacob's pretty sure Esau's coming after him to kill him. Why, you ask? Another great question. You guys are on your game today. Well, because Jacob, many, many, many years ago, pulled a few tricks. The first trick he pulled was one day when his brother Esau was out doing Esau things, namely out in the field, out, out hunting, doing what he did. See, um, is this okay to say Jacob was kind of a mama's boy? I'm not going to ask if there are any mama's boys here because that just gets awkward. But none, nonetheless, Jacob was a mama's boy. Esau was sort of dad's son. They were, they were the outdoorsmen. They wanted to go out there. And they had different personalities. As you know, if you've ever had kids with different personalities, they can clash a little bit. That's what happened. Esau stayed in. Or excuse me, Esau went out. Jacob stayed in. Esau comes in, and Jacob had cooked up apparently a rather fragrant pot of lentil stew. Yeah, exactly. I expected that. Lentil stew, fragrant? Mm. Sorry, preacher. I'm a Rosenbaum. What do you expect? Lentil stew, it's my thing. No, not really. I don't necessarily like it. But he did. And he smelled it. He came in. And Jacob offers him, or actually Esau asks for a bowl of stew. And Jacob decides, now is my chance. Tell you what, brother, I will give you a bowl of stew if you give me your birthright. What does that mean? Wow, great questions you're asking today. I'm really excited about that. Gives me a chance to explain these things. What is a birthright? It is the right of the eldest, the firstborn son, it involves the fact that you are known as the priest of your family. It involves the fact that you get twice as much of an inheritance as the rest of the family. Any eldest here you want? Yeah, Dad. Let's just camp on that for a minute. No, okay, good. It, it involves the fact that you kind of become the leader going forward of the family. You're the oldest son, the birthright. It, it means something. It means wealth. It means power. It means influence. And Jacob wanted that security, wanted that influence, wanted that right. And Esau says, what good does my birthright do to me if I die because I'm so hungry? And so he sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. But that's not all. There's more. You see, a, a little while later, even though the brothers had this conversation, dad wasn't necessarily in on the thing. Dad, at some point as he got older, would convey a blessing upon the eldest son. Now, we think a blessing is what we do when we sit down to have a meal and we ask God to bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies and our bodies to your service. Amen. It's 
kind of our, our thing. But for the Old Testament believer, the Old Testament follower of God, a blessing was hugely important. And for a father to bless his son has impact. And so the time is coming. The time has come for the father to bless Esau, his son. Well, he lets mom know and going to get things ready to bless. And mom hears about this. Mom knows what's coming. And she decides to pull her son, Jacob, in to a little conference and says, we're going to trick your pop. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go in. And his eyesight's not that good. So you tell him that you're Esau and you steal the blessing from your brother. Interesting, huh? Well, Jacob is a pretty smart guy. You don't get the name like that. You don't have this track record that he builds without knowing a few tricks of the trade. And he kind of explains to his mom, if I go in, it's not going to work. Because Esau, what does Esau mean? It means red and. And guess what? Jacob is not. Jacob's a little less hairy. We'll just go with that than Esau. And so his mom plans and she gets some some clothes and some skins and puts it on him so he has the smell of the outdoors. He has the feel of his hairy brother. He goes in, and, and Dad, even even though he's blind, he can't see. He says, I, I'm not sure. Uh, you, you say you're Esau, but you sound like Jacob. Come closer so I can make sure you who you say you are. And, and the account tells us that when, when Jacob comes closer, his father smells the smell of of his older brother Esau on him and touches him and he feels the hairiness on his arms and he decides he is Esau and he blesses him. And about that time, guess who comes back ready to get his blessing? Just the other brother. Jacob and... You're asking good questions, but you're a little slow on the answers today. So let's... No. Esau comes in and says, Dad, I'm ready for a blessing. What happened? I just gave you the blessing. And now Esau is ticked. Yeah, that's a good word. He's ticked off. Mom knows it. She tells Jacob, you need to go. You need to run. You need to go. He sends him to uh, Laban, who's a relative, uh, far away. Jacob goes off to Laban's house. And you think all the twists and turns and deceptions of the story are over, don't you? Oh, but you would be wrong. Because there he meets Laban and his two daughters, Leah and Rachel. Leah's the oldest, Rachel's the youngest. Jacob falls in love with, any guesses? The younger Rachel. Ask for her hand in marriage. Laban says, work for me seven years and you can marry my daughter. Deal. He works seven years. It's his wedding day. They have the marriage. They put a veil over the bride, send her to Jacob, and he wakes up the next morning, and guess who's there? Leah. You guys have read this. I like it. Leah. And he's pretty upset that he's been fooled. Imagine that, you know. Kind of what goes around comes around, I guess. He's been fooled, and he goes and says, how could you do this to me? I ask you for Rachel. Isn't this fun? Who needs soap operas? Just read the Bible. Right? There it is. is What did you do to me? You deceived me. I wanted Rachel. I'll make you a deal. You work seven more years and you can have Rachel. Well, they actually work it out. And so it turns out that Dad promises, Laban promises you can have Rachel now and you can work seven more years after that. So 
he is allowed to take Rachel as his wife, which I'm sure sat well with Leah. And so begins this tension between the two wives, the younger Rachel he loves more than the older, because, you know, dad's like, I can't marry off the younger one before the older one, right? Oh, you would think that would be the end of the intrigue, and you would once again be wrong. Because Jacob has another trick up his sleeve. He's, for Laban, the one who watches his flocks. And he wants to kind of take his leave as the 14 years he's worked are going to come to an end. He wants to go off and be his own kind of household, his own man with his women and his children and his flocks. And he says, I'll make you a deal, Laban. You know I've been faithful to you. Here's what we're going to do to prove that I don't steal from you. We're going to take all of the livestock that are spotted, speckled, or, or black, they will be mine. Those are my livestock. Anything else is yours. And so you can tell just by looking at the herd, if you see any spotted, spotted speckled, or black lambs or goats or whatever, you know I've stolen. They're mine. And if you see them, anyway, it's getting there. You got it right. So what does he do? I'm glad you ask. He has this plan. And the, the, the livestock come to a particular watering hole to mate. This is the adult part of the sermon. And he takes some branches and puts them in the water when the strongest of the flocks of Laban come to mate. And these branches have, guess what, specks and spots on them. And when the strongest mate in front of the watering trough with these speckled branches, they bear speckled offspring which are the strongest of the flock that Jacob sends off to be with him. And when the weaker ones come to mate, he doesn't put those branches in the, in the water. And so when they mate, the weaker of the flock have not spotted or speckled or black um, livestock. And so those are Laban's. And over time, Jacob is getting richer and richer, and his flocks are getting stronger and stronger. And Laban is getting weaker and weaker, and his flocks are getting sicker and sicker. Jacob's the kind of guy you want as your best friend, right? This is the guy. So finally, the time is up. And I'm sure Laban was like, please, go away. We've had enough of this. Just go. Just get away. And Jacob takes all these healthy herds and this wealth that he's acquired and this family that he has and leaves. And it's at that point, shortly thereafter, that the word comes to him, Esau is coming out to meet you. After 14 years of being separated, what would you think your brother might feel if you'd stolen his birthright and his blessing? You're looking forward to this moment, this, this grand reunion. So Jacob, pretty sure this isn't going to go well, sends all of his family and all of his livestock away. And he camps here by this river because the next day he's going to meet Esau. So how did this start? And Jacob was alone. That was a long explanation for Jacob was alone, right? But that's why he's alone. Because of all of that backstory. And here's what I think that I see in my life, that I see in, in the lives of most people anyway. The more we practice deception, the more we keep up facades, the more we keep up fronts, the more we trick, the more and more and more alone we become. Because eventually, those things come back on us. And people start seeing that, you know what, this isn't a trustworthy person. This isn't the kind of person 
I want to be near. This isn't the kind of person I want to have a relationship with or do business with. And so those qualities increasingly isolate us. Oh, at the time, they may have been productive. They may have helped us get ahead. They may have given us an advantage or gotten us a little bit of this or a little bit of that. But in the long run, the more we do that, the more isolated we can become. And Jacob finds himself all alone, except for this other fellow that shows up, a man who comes to wrestle with him all night long. Now, I don't know if this is like sort of a what Jacob thought when that would happen. Did he think he was being robbed, even though he'd sent all of his possessions away? Did he think, what? I don't know. But that's quite the wrestling match. I know we have a few MMA fans here, and, you know, you see that. That's the picture I get. I mean, if you've ever watched boxing, that's a little different, or MMA, boxing three-minute rounds, MMA five-minute rounds. I watch those guys sometimes, and you think, it's only three minutes, or it's only five minutes, right? That's a long five minutes. And some of the, the fights that go, the boxing matches that go 12 or 15 rounds, I mean, those are exhausting 30 to 36 minutes. In MMA, it's five-minute Rounds, five rounds for championships, 25 minutes. Those guys are whipped. I mean, just this, the exertion that it would take. Multiply that times, let's see, all night long, let's go eight hours. So we're going at least 16 times as long as a championship MMA fight. Does that connect with anybody? Probably not. Nonetheless, this is the picture. All night long they wrestle, touching the socket. Jacob is wounded. Jacob can't continue. But what does he do? He grabs a hold of this fella. Won't let him go. In fact, that's what we just read a few minutes ago. Let me go. I won't let you go until you bless me, he says. You're going to bless me, and then I'll let you go. And then the moment of truth for Jacob. Why did I tell you all of that backstory? Because the next verse is a key moment in his life. It's a question that he's asked. It's about to change everything. And the next verse, verse 27, says this. The man asked him, what is your name? Now, that's an innocent question. We had some guests here today. When I went around, we introduced ourselves. Maybe you're in business and you meet somebody for the first time in business. You shake their hands and say, hi, my name is Charles. What's your name? Seems like an innocent question. It's a normal question. It's kind of how we first interact and have a a way to identify that other person. But for Jacob, that question is loaded because he's been running from what his name was his entire life. He didn't want that name. He wanted another name. That name for him meant he came in second. It meant he didn't get the birthright that he thought he should have had. It meant that he had to steal the blessing from his father. It meant that So many times in his life he had pretended to be somebody else because he thought that was the only way he could make progress. And now this person who's wrestled with him all night long, who he says, I will not let you go until you bless me, ask him, what is your name? And what does Jacob say? That's really the question, isn't it? How is he going to answer that question? How is he going to, in that moment of weakness and helplessness, how is he going to finally answer that sort of question? And it's a one-word answer. And it's his name, Jacob. 
he answered. I don't think this was, again, a simple, you ask me a question, who are you, and I tell you who I am. No, I think that answer was the moment where he admitted all of that backstory to the person he was wrestling with. Where he said, for the first time in his life, I am Jacob. I am the one who grabbed my brother's heel. I am the deceiver who bartered for a birthright and who stole a blessing and who cheated his father-in-law. That's me. Something he'd been running from his whole life. In that moment, he admitted. That's a tough thing. That's a really tough thing. If we're, if, if we're honest, if I'm honest, there are things in my life that I'd rather people not know. There are stories in my past that I would rather people not know. There are parts of maybe my character that in certain settings, I would rather people not know. I've told you before, I, I can get mad and I like to go driving by myself when I get mad. And I, I, I yell, which might surprise you if you know me well, because I'm kind of a little bit shy and a little bit quiet. And if you've only seen me preach, you're like, huh, you yell a lot. What's the point? I get it, but nonetheless. I go and I get in my car and I scream. And, and my latest little twist is now I say wordy dirts. I curse sometimes when I'm getting mad and I'm going and taking it out. Now, it might be shocking because I'm a preacher. I'm not supposed to say those things. Well, I, I know I can say like hell if I'm in a sermon talking about the devil. That's okay. But overall, you know, those kind of things, that's a... You know, just one thing. If you're driving beside me and I'm having one of those frustrating, angry moments and the windows were down and you heard it, you would probably think, who is that guy? I thought I knew him. I thought he was a preacher. You know, and on the other hand, you might say, well, we're all allowed to have those moments, right? We all kind of get to that point where we're fed up. But here's the thing that Jacob had to answer, that I have to answer, and all of us have to answer. At some point, we have to be honest with God of who we really are. And when we're honest, as Jacob was here, it opens the possibility of some amazing things. Call it, well, one of the things the Bible calls it, is confession. What's confession mean? Confess, the word, literally it means to say the same thing as or to agree with. And we might hear 1 John 1, 9, confess your sins and he'll be faithful and just to forgive your sins. What does it mean to confess your sins? It means to agree with God that what you did is wrong. Confession, in that sense, we know is very beneficial. But I think, and here's a verse maybe, we, we don't like James chapter 5, verse 16. It says this, confess your sins to each other. So I thought we'd take a few minutes and you just turn to the person next to you. I mean, I told you, I think it's only fair. 
Okay. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Why? What's the result of that? So that you may be healed. And then here, the last part of that verse we, we, we use a lot. The, the, if, I, I learned it differently. I memorized it, I guess, from another translation. The translation I memorized goes like this. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Anybody else get that translation in their head? Okay, good. The NIV just says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. But what's the context of that? See, we quote that, in, and rightfully so, about our prayers, maybe for those who are sick or those who have needs. But notice the particular context of that encouragement, that promise that our prayers are powerful and effective. It comes on the heels of confessing your sins to each other. When somebody asks us, maybe not using those exact words, but in so many words, what is your name? As the man who wrestled with Jacob asked him. And he had the guts, he had the courage to answer honestly and say, my name is Jacob. Then he was healed. How was he healed? Well, the next verse in Genesis 32, after he answers, verse 28, Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Why is Israel called Israel? Because this patriarch, the third of the patriarch's name, once Jacob becomes Israel, and out of his lineage comes the, the sons that are the twelve tribes of Israel that to this day we think of and, and have memorized and know are there. Jacob, but, but here's the interesting thing, and think something we can't miss. Most of the time in Scripture, when it refers to Israel, when it refers to the God of Israel, it says the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It says a few times Israel, but most of the time it doesn't call Jacob Israel. It calls him Jacob. Why? Because I think we need to know that. We need to be reminded that God built the, the, the kingdom that would come and the people that would come and the nation that would bring about the Messiah out of these very flawed individuals. People like Jacob, who deceived regularly, who got ahead that way. And so we see his story and we know... God doesn't abandon him. God doesn't toss him aside. No, that moment where he comes clean is the transition for God to use him as the beginning of, or as the next step in the building of his nation, Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And I would suggest to you, sometimes what's standing between us and God using us in the way he desires is us coming clean with who we really are. See, we think confession sometimes is just another step, another necessary thing we have to do. We have to, we have to do this because God tells us to. And, and because if we do this, if we somehow take that risk, if we somehow it, admitting we're doing something about our sin. But I think it's the exact opposite. I think confession is the moment where we admit we are powerless to do anything, and we need help. We need, particularly from God, 
what only he can do through the person of his son, Jesus. And we need secondarily from other believers the support and help we get when we live lives together. I heard uh, somebody say just a few weeks ago when he was talking about his church, he's a pretty successful pastor, several thousand people on Sundays, satellite congregations. Uh, He said this, my vision for our church isn't to get more and more people sitting in rows. He said, my hope and prayer and vision for our church is to get more and more people sitting in circles in homes. I thought, that's interesting. Because you know what we measure in church world, as I've said before, is how many people sit in rows. In fact, somebody probably counted today, yes? And there'll be a report in there, and I have an Excel spreadsheet and a graph to chart trends so that I can know, hey, are we up? And I can tell you this year we're up like 15% over last year and be really excited about it. As are you. Because that's kind of what preachers do. We obsess over those numbers and want to see progress. And if you're in, you're in business, you maybe not look at people in seats, but you have benchmarks and you have things that you want to see. You have progress, you have growth, you have increase. And we like, we like that. But, but when I heard that, it struck me as he's saying something pretty significant. That, that while this... I think is good. And while this, I think, is necessary, it's not all that we're to be about. It's those moments when it's a smaller group where you can get to know somebody differently, where it's not just people that are up front leading or a pastor talking and you listening. It's you looking face-to-face, eye-to-eye, giving your understanding, sharing your insights, sometimes sharing your hurts, your needs, your weaknesses, so that somebody else across the room or next to you can come alongside you and in those honest moments support you and love you. Because that's where, wrong verse, but uh, James 5.16 says, when we confess our sins, we pray for each other so that we may be healed. And that happens best, not in this format, but in a smaller format. And we have some nice places that that happens. At the end of the service, we'll talk about a couple of Bible studies that are cranking up on Thursdays for our ladies. And and we, we have a men's group that meets, and we have small groups that meet after the church service. And I'm hoping that we continue to have more and more and more of those meeting Maybe not just in the context of, hey, here's Sunday morning and let's get together and oh, we need to count this and count that. But no, how can you find a place, whether it's Sunday morning or Tuesday afternoon or Friday night, where you can get together with other people and not in rows but in circles, confess your sins to each other. You're like, yeah, this is a good promo, preacher. Here, sign up for our Confess Your Sins community group. How many want to do that? No, but you can honestly get to know somebody else and be willing to share your struggle, your needs, and also support them. Now, I know if you're like me, and I'm sure most of you are even more so, you're busy. Is anybody not busy? Exactly what I thought. Most of us are pretty busy. So adding something else, like preacher, I don't have time for that. You're probably right. I'll give you that. But here's something that I think you'll find. You know, when you do something like this, it's not how much time you have, 
I'm going to use my, my old, uh, this is like a parental thing, right? You don't have time, you have to make time. Isn't that true? If I were to say to you, hey, I got two tickets to the Super Bowl, who's got time? Suddenly, all of you have at least six, eight hours of free time on the spot. Amen. Point made, moving on. <laughs> it's not just about, do you have time? It's about, will you make the time? Is that important enough to you that you will choose to do that? And, and, and let's be honest, maybe you've been in a group and it didn't go well. We've all been in a group and you didn't connect with the other people and, you know, maybe you didn't like the leader or you didn't get along with somebody. You know, that happens. Have you ever had a bad meal, like a really lousy meal? Did you determine I'm never going to eat again? You didn't? Based on one experience, you didn't decide to stop eating? Here's my suggestion. Based on a bad experience, don't decide to stop getting together with other believers and around Scripture and around prayer and around your concerns and doing that. Don't let one experience make the difference. And, you know, here's the thing. Maybe the last encouragement is when you think about those things, you might think, that's not for me. You know, that's not really my, I'm kind of a quiet person. Or, or whatever the reason, it's not really for me. What if it's not about you? What if it's about somebody else in that group that needs who you are and what you've been through to encourage them? What if you have an experience that somebody else in this room that you've never met before is going through and is in the middle of right now and doesn't know if it's possible this will ever end or they'll ever get through it or there's any hope in sight. And when they shared that experience, you sitting across the room or next to them heard it, and you go, wait, let me tell you my story because I was there six months ago or a year ago or five years ago. And let me tell you how God helped me through that and how that worked out even when it seemed hopeless and let me support you through it and I'll be the person and when it's a time that you just think it's too much here's my number call me let's do coffee let's go out to dinner I'll be the person that can support you through it what if it's not just about what you need what if it's about who you are that could be a help to somebody else who thinks they're all alone and nobody's ever been through this before and nobody understands and you're the person that does See, God in his wisdom gave us each other. And we are all, to some degree, Jacobs. We're all broken. We all have hurts. We've all failed. We've all had some pretty remarkable experiences where God has come through for us. And we've all been in relationship with God, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and have knowledge of him and have experiences with him that can help somebody else. And so God said, get together in this thing we call the church, not only in rows on Sundays at whatever time, but also face-to-face, eye-to-eye, so that you can, in that context, confess your sins you can answer the same question Jacob had to answer. You can be honest about your struggle and who you are and how God has met you and how God has walked you through and how God has shown you he cares. 
and you can pray for each other. And maybe in that context, the church gets just a little bit healthier and a little bit wholer. What's your name? Because you're wrestling with something. Maybe not in the throes of it right now. Maybe it was last week, or maybe it's going to be in two days. Somebody needs to know what's your name. Who are you really? Will you let down that facade enough to let somebody else encourage you and pray for you, even walk with you through what you may be facing? Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the example of Jacob and others like him in Scripture. We could spend so much time just thinking about the flaws of the people we think are heroes of faith. The ones that that we look up to and read their stories in the Bible, that, that even in the midst of those stories are those moments where we see they, they're all too human. They struggle. They even fail. But I thank you, just like you met Jacob and wrestled with him, you will meet us and wrestle with us and help bring us to the moment where we admit who we really are, which is just another way of saying how much we need you. Thank you that as part of that process, you give us other Christians, other faithful friends who stand beside us, who pray for us, who support us, who encourage us, who laugh and cry with us. Thank you for that reality that you have built into what we call the church. And may we, as your people, be willing to stop working so hard to keep up appearances that we miss the healing that comes when we're honest with one another and pray with one another and allow you to work. Lord, we come to our time of response. We come to that time where we grapple with the truths of your word. And I pray that today, if there's someone here who does not know you as Savior, that even today they would be willing to admit, to confess who they are, before you, a person who has sinned, who has broken your law, and who needs you, who needs a Savior, who needs forgiveness and new life. And I thank you that in Jesus you have made all of that possible. That in him, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us, to give us salvation, and to restore our relationship with you and with others. Lord, we give you now these moments. May you have your way, we pray, in Jesus' name.